Uh, Galatians chapter 6, looking tonight at the subject matter of the wondrous cross. Galatians 6, we're coming to an end. Galatians 6. You want to unplug the mic just to make it feel more at home? <laughs> and cut out the lights too? Okay. <laughs> that was a challenge, I tell you. Uh, beginning there in verse 11. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law. Yet they may want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule. To the Israel of God. Now, for those in the room uh, 55 and older, if I were to ask you what was probably one of the most significant deaths you remember from the 20th century, I can imagine what some of you would say. John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy, right? You, you may even remember where you were when it first came on the news. And you heard that. And some people would say, you know, that's one of the more significant deaths that we've heard, in the, heard about in the public eye. But you know, there's another death infinitely more important and infinitely more relevant to mankind. The death that really matters the most was the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins more than 2,000 years ago. Uh, furthermore, unlike the death of a president or anybody else, Christ's death wasn't simply a tragedy, but it was also a triumph. What wasn't it? And that's why the Apostle Paul says what he does in verse 14, that if he's going to boast, he's going to boast in the cross of Christ. He's going to glory in the cross. Now, of course, this follows from the verses that just went ahead. In verse 12, he said, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. And then Paul says, by way of contrast to the Judaizers, he says, but may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, keep in mind that Paul is writing to people who have become believers as a result of his first missionary journey. When he went through the region of Galatia and he was evangelizing and planting churches. 
but certain false teachers. We've talked a lot about them in here uh, through Galatians. The Judaizers had come into the church, infiltrated the ranks of the church, and they're trying to move people away from the hope that they have in Christ. And they've been telling the Galatians what? That it's fine on the one hand if you want to place your faith and trust in Jesus for your salvation, well and good, but they've gone on to say what? That Christ is not enough. That you need something more, a Christ plus something else. Specifically what they were saying was keeping of the law and observing the rite of circumcision. Issues which aren't a factor today, but yet what is a factor is the same principle. All kinds of people today, sadly, even in many churches who would think, I need to have a Jesus plus something else salvation. And again, as Paul has been reminding them, that is no gospel at all. That is a false gospel. And so Paul has written this entire letter to combat the Judaizers and to call the Galatian Christians back to the purity of the gospel. And here he is at the end of the letter. He wraps up this letter by reminding them of what is foundational and what he's really been teaching about and talking about the whole entire time. And so first of all, tonight, if you're taking notes, I want you to see that life and faith is a matter of sowing and reaping. A little bit of overlap with what we covered last week. Life and faith is a matter of sowing and reaping. Life, when truly understood, is not the sort of thing that many people in the world would say it is. Life is tremendously serious. And that's why Paul says, beginning in verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so life is a matter of sowing and reaping. What a man sows, he shall also reap. Now, all of us are responsible human beings, and, and we'll die, and we'll stand before God in judgment, and we'll have to give an account of ourselves. And our, our trust in the Lord, what we've done with Christ, uh, how God has brought us conversion through Christ, that'll be the key. And... Along that lines, too, have we sown to the flesh or have we sown to the Spirit? Obviously, in the greatest way, you sow to the Spirit, coming to faith in Christ and living for Him. You sow to the flesh, trusting in things of the flesh. You see, sowing to the flesh, we might often think, is just simply things like anger, in materialism and lust. And those things are true. That would be sowing to the flesh. But in the context of this letter, the very worst way to sow to the flesh would be what? Thinking you can do something in your flesh to help 
achieve or gain your salvation. Again, in the context of the book of Galatians, that would be the worst of all kinds of sowing to the flesh. You know, all religions teach that good works in order to get to heaven. Uh, when, when you think about religions that teach that, religions of the world apart from Christianity, essentially what they're teaching is sowing to the flesh. You've got to do something in your strength. You've got to help God out. You've got to add to what Christ did. What Christ did is not enough in some way. You've got to add to it. That's, that's what so many religions of the world would, would teach. And, and as Paul writes Galatians, he's trying to clear up this false teaching that the Judaizers have created. And again, it's, it's a confusion that exists down to the current day. In fact, the majority of the religions of the world, in some sense, appeal to the flesh, promising the worshiper that he or she can increase their chances of eternal life through some type of exercise of the flesh. I think of Islam, for example. The thinking they have that... Uh, of course, there's no concept in Islam of a loving God or of knowing Him in any kind of personal way. And it's no assurance of salvation. You get to the end of your life and they would say, you know, if you stand before Allah and have more checks in the good column than in the bad column, you might have eternal life. And of course, if you want to increase your chances and you're a male, then you can join in with jihad, killing the infidels, and then not only will you have eternal life, but you'll have 70 virgins in heaven. What's that, in a sense, uh, an example of? Sowing to the flesh. An appeal to the flesh. But Paul, again, Paul is saying here, you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. And so life is a matter of sowing and reaping. <clears throat> or there's the sowing to the Spirit that Christianity teaches, whereby you trust in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, and then you live for His glory. You allow Him to live His life through you day in and day out. You're crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, you live. Yet not yourself, but Christ who lives within you. Galatians 2.20 And so you live to sow to the Spirit. And so again, what, what the Judaizers are promoting is sowing to the flesh. And, and as I'm saying, we see that all around us in the world today all around us, sadly. And there's a further irony, as Paul points out in verse 13. Look at what he says there in verse 13. Not even those who were circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. Even those who were sowing to the flesh by, by preaching the law, they themselves are not really living according to the law. And so not only are they off base on the way of justification, 
But they don't even live by the standard that they set down. All they want is to brag about how many converts they have. They want to boast in the flesh. Well, secondly, I want you to write down, to deny the necessity of the cross is a compromise. And it's dangerous. It's tragic. To deny the necessity of the cross is a compromise. Look at verse 11. There's an urgency that Paul is writing with. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. This could be that Paul's thorn in the flesh had something to do with his eyesight that was affected. And so he wants them to know he's writing this letter in his own hand and they ought to be able to discern that by the large letters he's writing with. But, but he's writing here with an urgency. In fact, he writes Galatians with a greater sense of urgency than he writes any other letter. Because his other letters, he'll have an introduction, you know, salutations and a prayer for the, for the people there. But he just jumps right in. I marvel that you're so soon removed from trusting in Christ. What happened to you? And in chapter 3, who has bewitched you? I mean, this whole letter is, is urgent. In verse 12, he reveals the real motive of the Judaizers. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. They're compromising with the Jews. The Judaizers are compromising with the Jews so that they can avoid persecution. They are hoping to appease the Jewish authorities into thinking that they are also continuing to trust in the law. They're not doing away with the law at all is what they want the authorities to think. While they may be preaching Jesus, they're not preaching Him exclusively. It's a compromise. Again, it's a false gospel. They want the Jews to believe that they are just as zealous for the Old Covenant as they've ever been. And the reason they're doing this, again, is so that they can avoid any persecution that the Jews were dishing out against Christians who were trusting in Christ alone. But what they're really doing is an injustice, what the Judaizers are really doing is an injustice to both the Old and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant was not just a matter of obeying the law and being circumcised. That might have been the outward symbol of being a Jew, but it wasn't the essence as Paul points out in Romans 4, Abraham was justified by faith 400 years before the law was even given. And the law itself never taught a justification by the law. The Jewish leaders had made an end to that, but they were wrong. And so the Judaizers were misinterpreting the old covenant just like the Jewish authorities were doing. And on top of that, the Judaizers are doing an injustice to the cross as well. 
Because the cross, the Bible nowhere teaches that what happened at the cross is just a tack-on or an add-on. The New Covenant teaches that the cross fulfills and replaces the Old Covenant sacrifices. As the book of Hebrews points out, God is not even dealing with people anymore on the basis of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant has been rendered obsolete. So you don't have the two covenants coexisting. And you just pick either one or some combination of both that you want to go by. No. The two are not coexisting. You have the new replacing the old. And trying to make the two coexist the Judaizers are trying to do nothing but spin some type of compromise. Well, thirdly, Paul points out the truth of the gospel. What is the Christian gospel? What does it proclaim? How can a man be right with God? How can a man sow to the Spirit and reap eternal life? Now, fortunately, the Scripture lays this out so plainly, so clearly for us. And Paul couldn't have been any more clear than what he states in verse 14. That's the gospel that he preached. The preaching of the death of the Lord Jesus, the death, the burial, and the resurrection is the very heart and the center of the Christian gospel. And there can be no compromise with that. The thing that matters above all else and what Paul is wanting to communicate most urgently to the Galatians is the fact of Christ dying on the cross for sinners. And that's how sinners are justified. That's what the apostles preached. When you turn to 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, and what does Paul do? He says, I'm going to lay out for you the gospel that I preach. And he talks about Christ being crucified, being buried, and raising again on the third day. This was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. And yet, at risk of their very lives, the apostles and the early Christians continued to preach that message. And it's important that we do the same. What I'm saying is there can be no compromise with that message. We dare not try to weave other things in with it. Other ideas in the world about how to be made right with God. We've got to stay laser focused on what the good news of the gospel is. You know, even the teachings of Jesus Christ are not the heart of the gospel. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. There are some people today that would say, what we simply need is just the moral teachings of Jesus. Like the Sermon on the Mount. Just give us the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll try to live by that. Now, true, we need His teachings. But according to the Apostle Paul and even Jesus' own words, that's not, that doesn't take care of 
the first and foremost need of mankind. Christ's teaching itself pointed to what? Pointed to His sacrifice for sin. He told His disciples the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and be rejected and crucified. And so Christ's own teachings confirmed where He was headed. He was headed to a cross. And if you only preach the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ without going on to also preach the cross, you don't solve the problem of mankind. As James Montgomery Boyce says, you even aggravate it in a sense. You're preaching nothing but utter condemnation because nobody can even carry it, carry it out. You can't carry out Christ's teachings in your own strength or righteousness. Likewise, the example of Jesus Christ is not the heart and core of the gospel. Is the example of Jesus important? Absolutely. But what do, what do people say today? Some people would say today, all we need about Jesus is we just need to follow his example. That's enough. You know, and the little bracelets, what would Jesus do? And you know, that's a wonderful way for people who are already Christians to live. But that's not the starting point either. That's not the core of the gospel. Again, what do you find to be the core of the gospel that came directly off the lips of the Lord Jesus himself and the apostles? It was that he was going to die for sins. I'll give you another example of this. Matthew 16, who do men say that I am? And they said, you know, some say that you're Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right after he gets done talking to Peter about that, that flesh and blood's not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Right after that, you remember what he said, what the scripture says? It says that he took his disciples aside and began to show them clearly that he must go to Jerusalem, be rejected by the Pharisees and scribes and religious authorities, and be crucified. And Peter didn't like that, did he? Took him aside. That'll never happen. And what did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You're not minding the things of God, but rather the things of man. So again, he emphasized his death. In Matthew 20, 28, that verse says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then at the Last Supper, he arranged everything and told them exactly how to prepare it. And then as they were eating, he took the loaf and broke it and said, this is my body which is given for you. And likewise, he poured out the wine from the cup and said, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. And so there, very clearly in his teaching, there it is again. The cross is vital. And here's another notable point. Read all four Gospels and calculate in terms of proportion the amount of space and time that they dedicate to the death of the Lord, 
a huge amount of time. Why are all of this prominence given? Because it's the foundation. It's the core. You come to the epistles. One passage can summarize them all. Romans 3. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe... For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Romans 5, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And so again, what Paul is saying to the Galatians here is he glories in the cross because it is by Jesus down on the cross that we are saved. And you can't dare add to that in any way. You can't dare try to mix in other things with that. You add in other things or try to make compromises or whatever with that. And, and, and what do you do? You distort the gospel and you end up preaching a false gospel. The death of Jesus was not an accident. It was not the greatest tragedy of all time. And neither is it something to ever be duplicated. It was God's plan from the foundation of the world. It wasn't some add-on. It wasn't some second thought. It wasn't some emergency salvation measure when other measures had failed. It was God's plan from the beginning. So again, he's saying, saying to them, and the Holy Spirit would just as powerfully say to us today, don't forget the cross. Don't make light of it. Don't try to push it aside. Don't try to minimize it. Glory in it. Why? Because it is by this, Paul says here, the world is crucified to me and I to the world. It's the means through which we're saved. In other words, if Christ hadn't died on that cross for your sin, you wouldn't be saved. Now, fourthly, how does the cross save us? Any man who is saved is saved through Christ dying, his death, burial, resurrection. And to experience that salvation means that you have peace with God. You're reconciled with God. Your sins have been forgiven. How does this happen? Well, you'll never understand the significance of the cross until you understand the significance of the one who died there. On the one hand, he was a man. He was a carpenter or brought up in a carpenter's home in a little village called Nazareth. But he was more than a man. He was God, the Son of God, the Lord of glory. Just like Peter had confessed, you're the Son of God, the Son of the living God. Now, if you were looking only with the eyes of men, you would only perhaps see a man. Because he was fully man. 
But again, more is revealed. He was fully God. He's the God-man. If he was the God-man, then the question is, what in the world is he doing dying on a cross? Why is the Messiah dying on a cross? He's the last one you would expect if you were looking at it through human eyes and human logic. He's the last one that ought to be dying on a cross. Again, the way men would look at it. But there he is, dying. Hebrews 2.9 says, But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The Son of God is there dying on the cross because he came from heaven into this world in order to die, that he might taste death for you. But why? Well, that's what the whole Bible's about, isn't it? He came and died for you and me because we stood condemned before a holy God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I mean, you can't just talk about good men and bad men. That's, that's nonsense. In the sight of God, there's none good, none who are righteous. All of our good works are nothing more than, than filthy rags. Why can't God just Strike out the account and write and all is forgiven over it because God is holy and God is just. In fact, we can't even comprehend fully His holiness and, and justice. God cannot even look upon sin, the Scripture says. And He can't pretend that it's not there. His holiness demands a punishment for sin. So here's the problem. Man's guilty. God is holy. How can the two be brought together? The answer is what? The cross of Christ. How is this the answer? Well, you go back to the Old Testament. What do you find there? You find sacrifices. Those animals. Perfect. Uh, the flawless animals. But they were sacrificed to take away sin? No, just to cover it. Every year there, there was the reminder. Those, those would cover. And they would point forward to one day God was going to give the perfect sacrifice that would take sin away. That would never have to be repeated. All those sacrifices were but types and shadows. But here's the real thing. Here's Jesus. Remember what John the Baptist said? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so what's happening on the cross? Here's, here's the Messiah, the perfect sacrifice that fulfills all of those others. God is laying on Him your sins and my sins and all the wrath of God against sin, all of that, that penalty for sin is on Christ and He is dying for you and me. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's why Paul says if he's going to boast or glory in anything, that's what he's going to glory in. 
God smites his own son. And the law of God, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God is completely satisfied. The law's been carried out. Christ has paid the penalty. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1 says. And so what do you do and what do I do? There's only one thing to do, repent and believe. And that's the good news of the gospel, that the shed blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient for those trusting in him and him alone. And you have peace with God through trusting him. And you're reconciled to a holy God. That's why we glory in the cross. You try to glory in something else, things of the flesh, things of the law. There's no, there's no forgiveness. There's no freedom in that. We glory in the cross. And the cross was the message Paul could carry to the whole world. He could preach it to his own people. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. He took that message to the Jews who were trusting in the law, trusting in circumcision, trusting in deeds of the flesh to... to help their own righteousness in some way. He took the message of the cross to them, but not only to the Jew, but also to the Gentile. It's the message Paul took to everybody. He could go into the temples of his day filled with people who thought of themselves as righteous, not needing anything, and he showed them they needed Christ. They'd sinned come short of the glory of God. It's the same message he took to the Gentiles. Many of them living like pagans. He says here in verse 15, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything. It is the cross that gives men a whole new standing before God. And so as he closes, it's like he says, so enough. I don't want to hear any more about this message the Judaizers are preaching to y'all of what man can do for himself in his flesh. I mean, he, he's ending with a kind of abruptly and emphatically also, just like he started the letter. It, it's like a parent saying to a child, enough already, enough is enough. No more of this. And again, I say, is it, is it a message that needs to be preached today? Absolutely. Because I can almost promise you if you go out of this place tonight and were to go out on the street corner interviewing people about eternal life and forgiveness and going to heaven and asking people what they're trusting in to get to heaven, nine out of ten people you talk to are going to have some version of they're trying to do their best. And I'm hoping I can do this and do this and if I do enough for them... So yes, this is still a message that is very relevant today. The basis of our standing before God. The cross of Christ. So we make much of it. We glory in it. We don't memorize it. I don't minimize it. We don't minimize it. 
We don't allow the message of the cross to, to be tainted and corrupted and compromise it with other messages. So many out in the world that tell the church, come on church, you need to add this in or do this. No, we trust in Christ and Christ alone. Let me give you some lessons tonight. Lesson number one, all are guilty before God. All. Human pride should be completely removed from the picture. None are deserving of salvation. None. Just read Romans 3 again. None. There is none who is righteous. No, not even one. Who's guilty? All are guilty. And that's why we need Christ. Second lesson, religion can easily appeal to the pride of man and give a false assurance. You know, somebody just buying into some religious system, oh man, I feel pretty good what I've done. I've done this, I've done that. And it, and it leads to human pride. But in the gospel, there is no human pride. Woe is me, I am undone. I have nothing in myself. Human pride is excluded. A third thing I want you to walk away from here with. God has conclusively dealt with sin at the cross. He's conclusively dealt with sin at the cross. There's not some other plan coming. Again, the cross is what the Bible's leading up to. All human attempts fail. And then a fourth lesson, God should be praised for He has done for man what He didn't have to do. The cross is a display of God's grace and mercy and love. And so we don't end up patting ourselves on the back. We end up giving God all the praise and the glory. Because all the praise and the glory should go to Him. I guess at the end of this study, I would say to some of you tonight, could I possibly be talking to somebody as we've gone through Galatians that you've still got this idea that you're going to do something that add to your salvation or accomplish your salvation or add to Jesus in some way, you need to come to Christ trusting Him and Him alone. I would appeal to you to understand the message of Scripture. Uh, what you're trusting in is not the Gospel. If you're trusting in yourself in some way, or what you can add to it with. Trust Christ and Christ alone. And I would say to believers who have done that, 
stand strong against the currents of the age that would have us move away from the message of Christ. He's our hope. He's our only hope. Don't be pressured by any system, anything, anybody out there who's urging you in some way to move away from the simplicity of the gospel. As Jude 3 says, contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Don't be moved from the hope and the assurance that you have in Jesus Christ. And I think we'll end on that note. Unless you have something to add. Something to add to the message of Galatians. Richard? Yeah, I think the message of the cross could be watered down, not watered down, but it could be hurt by a a legalistic uh, church because a person going into that church for the first time and they say, what do they see in this church? Uh, and they see people that uh, are all the women are wearing dresses or they're speaking in tongues. What's the main message? You know, and you know, they might give an invitation and might talk about the cross, but what do people on the outside see? And it does take away from the power and the message of the cross sure. if they're legalistic. Two great enemies that you can run into even in church, two great enemies of the gospel. License and legalism. A license, what do I mean? People who have the attitude, oh, now that I'm saved, I can do anything I want. Sin doesn't matter. In Romans, God, uh, in Romans, Paul, God, the Apostle Paul says that, God forbid. God forbid. You don't leap into sin just because, in fact, if you leap into sin and love it just because you think, hey, I'm, I'm free to do it now that I'm in Christ, then you've probably not understood the gospel to begin with. You're, you're to be a new creation in Christ. You're different. The other enemy of the gospel, as you pointed out, is legalism. And you do find that in, in some circles today. That, you know, on top of Christ, you need to, you know, everybody's got their little checklist. You've got to do this and do this and do this and do this and do this. And that's dangerous too. License and legalism. Two enemies to the gospel that you can bump into head on in, in churches today. It's such a basic letter, the book of Galatians. Such a basic letter. Dealing with the principle. Again, how they were applying it, what they were dealing with, we don't deal with that same thing. But we still deal with the principle of what the letter is attacking. 